Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode two of season two of the Fashion Law Network podcast. Today's episode is by popular demand from all my listeners all about Bottega Veneta. This luxury brand has always been a staple in the fashion world, but has really been catapulted to the next level recently with the help of their new creative director, Daniel Lee. I will begin with some brief history of the fashion house as usual, and then I'll go over some interesting patents and trademarks that the company owns. Then I will discuss and analyze a lawsuit that the fashion house has been a part of. And at the end of the episode, I will wrap up two outstanding lawsuits that are still pending from season one. There have been some very interesting developments there. So here we go. Let's begin with some history of the Bottega Veneta Fashion House. So the Bottega Veneta company is really famous for their woven leathers, which they call the Intrecciato, and they're all handcrafted in Italy. The company produces menswear, womenswear, luggage, handbags, shoes, eyewear, home furnishings, and fragrances, all in a somewhat understated and simple aesthetic. So the company was originally founded in 1966 by Michele Tadei and Renzo Zengiaro in Vicenza, Italy, which is the area in the northeast of Italy. And the name Bottega Veneta literally means Venetian shop in Italian. The company was initially created as a leather goods retailer. And when the company began manufacturing back in the 60s, their sewing machines actually were not appropriate to work with leather or the specific type of leather that they were working with. And so the company's artisans were forced to use this really fine leather to fit the sewing machine needles, which was then woven into this intrecciato pattern, which is this kind of crisscross weaving pattern, which we all know Bottega to be famous for, which actually makes the material stronger. This pattern is like weaving cross strips of really thin strips of leather, and it's a very sophisticated and unique technique. So this quickly became a signature of the fashion house. And also interestingly, Bottega doesn't use any kind of logo or um, monogram on their bags, just their signature leather weaving pattern, which I can spot right away and recognize as a Bottega bag, which I'm sure a lot of my fashion savvy listeners can also. Now, Bottega Veneta was a small shop for a while, and they fulfilled orders for various designers back in the day, like Giorgio Armani. Then the brand got very popular over the years, mostly due to the impeccable craftsmanship of their bags, and word got around about that. And then this led to an advertising campaign promoting its unique discreetness, and they had a tagline of, when your own initials are enough. Traditionally, the most famous item developed by Bottega Veneta is the bag called Cabat, C-A-B-A-T, and that bag became the icon of their style and the kind of understated luxury that they are known for. The Cabat bag is basically just like a rectangular tote bag with two shorter handles at the top, and it's made entirely of their soft Napa leather in the signature Intrecciato weave. 
And the design is then finished with rolled Napa handles and a interior pouch. It comes in many different colors and it is quite pricey. It varies from about $4,700 all the way up to over $70,000 depending on the leather and the finishes. So let's get back to the history. The co-founder of Bottega today ended up leaving the fashion house in the late 70s followed by his co-founder, Renzo Zangiaro, shortly afterwards. And a previous wife of today then took over the company. Her name is Laura Moltedo. The company then became very popular with celebrities, including Andy Warhol during the 80s. But then when the 90s came around, there was a slow decline in Bottega's popularity. They kind of changed their style a little bit too much, and they went away from the kind of signature understated luxury business model that was so successful to them for so long. So then in 2001, Bottega was bought by the Gucci group and Thomas Mayer was appointed as creative director that same year. Now Mayer brought new life into the fashion house when he came in and his vision was to return Bottega to that original signature discreet style which really showcased their weave, the leather weaving method. Um, Thomas Mayer ended up being the creative director of Bottega for 17 years, and he even opened his own brand and shop in Miami, which he founded in 1997, and he became really known for swimwear and knits. Now, during my time living in Miami, Florida, I would visit his shop often. It was a gorgeous store, and I even met Mr. Mayer a few times. He was wonderful. Then in 2018, just two weeks after news broke that Mr. Mayer was leaving Bottega Veneta, another announcement was made that the designer's own brand was also shutting down. So once Mayer left, Daniel Lee was appointed as a creative director, and he is still currently the creative director of Bottega. So during his relatively short stay at Bottega to date, He quickly got coined as fashion's new boy wonder of the fashion industry, and he's really catapulted the Bottega brand into the fashion spotlight. It was always kind of on the back burner, I want to say, at least in my opinion, compared to like Louis Vuitton and Gucci, these kind of more out there fashion houses. So Bottega was in a pretty good position when he took over after Mayer, but Daniel Lee really transformed it into an it label at the forefront of fashion. And I love this quote from Lee. He said that Bottega was a bit of a sleeping giant. And now he was definitely able to wake it up. His Bottega shoes that he designed with the really trendy square toe and his new bag designs are top sellers. I'm personally loving the new cassette bags. These are lines which feature an exploded version of the Bottega weaving pattern. And it's really popular both among the younger and older crowds. Bottega Veneta's pouch bag, one of Daniel Lee's first designs for the Italian fashion house is one of the most highly coveted accessories. Now the bag became a total sensation among fashion lovers, Instagram influencers, celebrity, and actually became Bottega's best-selling bag The pouch bag is basically like an oversized deconstructed clutch bag, and it has a gathering of leather at the top. Comes in lots of different colors, leathers, 
And recently I've seen it with a thick metal chain attached to the top so it can be worn as a shoulder bag. And I have various pictures of this bag on my Instagram at Patent Lawyer LA. And I will also link a few photos to the episode notes at the bottom of this episode. Now, according to Kerrig's 2019 annual report, now Kerrig, of course, is the fashion conglomerate who owns Gucci, Bottega, Balenciaga, among a few other brands. I think I've discussed them before in my previous episode, so I won't get into that here. But anyway, their financial report stated that the pouch was the fastest selling bag in Bottega Veneta's history. So this kind of just reminds me of Alessandro Michel, kind of what he did for Gucci when he was the creative director, and he still is. He kind of came in and gave it this really youthful energy. This definitely gives me Daniel Lee vibes here. Okay, so now that we know about the history of the fashion house and kind of where they're at now with their creative director, let's talk about their intellectual property. First, let's talk about patents. So Bottega owns over 50 patents. And if you guys are new to patents and haven't listened to some of my earlier episodes where I give a rundown of basic patent law, I'll just give a quick definition of a patent here. So a patent is a form of intellectual property that gives its owner the legal right to exclude others from using, selling, or making your invention or product for a limited period of years. And that's in exchange for publishing your public disclosure of the invention. This is where a patent attorney like me would come in to write the patent application for the inventor. And in order to get your patent granted, your invention must be useful, novel, and non-obvious. That's kind of the legal standard here. And you can even patent something that already exists as long as the improvement that you make to the original invention yields unexpected results. There are three types of patents. The two main ones are a utility patent, which protects the functionality or the way that something works. And a U.S. utility patent is valid for generally 20 years from its patent uh, priority date. And then the second main type of a patent is a design patent, which is usually valid between 14 and 15 years, um, depending on when you initially filed your patent. And these patents protect the ornamental nature of your item or product only. So Bottega owns lots of different design patents for their various bag, um, shoe designs, and also for some of their furniture items like tables, sofas, and lamps. Since they have a pretty robust furniture line, something that I didn't know about until I started researching this company for the episode. And as usual, I will provide a link to some of the more interesting patents in the episode notes of this episode. And then we'll get to the third type of patent. It is relatively rare, and it's called a plant patent. Now, this is a patent which is granted to a person who has discovered or created a new and distinct type of plant. Obviously, it doesn't come up in the fashion context very often, One of the only times I've seen it in the fashion context is for Neiman Marcus because they own a rose hybrid plant patent. And let's quickly go over trademark law now. A trademark is a symbol, word, or words legally registered or established by use as representing a company or product. 
And trademarks can be split into two parts also, character and logo marks. So the character mark protects the actual word or brand name of a company or product. So here, the Bottega Veneta name. And Bottega has various trademarks registered of their name associated with lots of different categories in which they conduct business, like clothing, watches, jewelry, among others. And then the other type of trademark is the logo or symbol that's associated with your company and goods or services. And Bottega also has a few logo marks registered, one of which is a knotted rope under the handbag category. So now that we have some background law knowledge, especially for my non-attorney listeners, let's get into a few lawsuits that Bottega has been involved with, um, the online Chinese shopping giant Alibaba. So in 2014, Caring, which is this big conglomerate that we've already discussed, which owns Bottega and Balenciaga and the Gucci Group, they filed suit against Alibaba and Caring claimed that Alibaba was complicit in the sale of fake handbags, watches, and other items on its marketplace. The parties managed to settle this first suit at a court back in August of 2014, but then according to Caring, the Chinese giant failed to hold up its end of the deal. So Caring, the conglomerate, filed another suit. So then in May of 2015, the Caring company filed suit against Alibaba again, on behalf of their various brands under its ownership umbrella, alleging that the Chinese online shopping giant knowingly made it possible for counterfeiters to sell their products throughout the world. Now, if anybody is unfamiliar, Alibaba is a really big company. It's, I think it's bigger than eBay and Amazon combined. And in many ways, Alibaba acts as kind of like the sister site to Amazon because a lot of Amazon's merchants purchase goods from Alibaba. So on August 3rd, 2017, Caring and the Alibaba Group and its affiliates and financial services came to this groundbreaking agreement to cooperate in their efforts to protect intellectual property and to take joint enforcement actions online and offline against infringers. They kind of came out with this statement. Now, here's a little fun fact about China and Alibaba. This is something I did not know. Every November 11th is something of a holiday, something they call Singles Day, which is like a makeshift holiday, an annual 24-hour shopping event, basically a type of anti-Valentine's Day where Chinese shoppers go all out on shopping. And last year, it was reported that the gross merchandise value of sales across Alibaba's platforms were $38 billion, which surpassed the previous year, 2019's record of nearly $30 billion. So it's going to be interesting to see what will happen this Singles Day on November 11th in China. I wonder if the pandemic will dampen their sales. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Now let's talk about the impact that the COVID pandemic has had on the Bottega Fashion House. So Bottega, along with some other major brands like Gucci, Saint Laurent, McQueen, and Balenciaga, are owned by the Paris-based conglomerate Caring, K-E-R-I-N-G. So Caring saw its sales for the second quarter drop by 43% compared to the same three-month period last year, but they think this was mostly due to store closures around the world and reduced customer spending because of that. So 
Then the caring brands kind of further get broken down by the financial reports for each brand that they own. So it looks like Bottega sales did fall, but not nearly as bad as compared to some of the other brands that Caring owns. So for example, it's reported that during the first half of 2020, Bottega sales were down by 9.5%, and the online sales more than doubled for the brand during that time, according to the Caring financial statement. And they also stated that wholesale revenue grew sharply up to 31% thanks to the overwhelming appeal of the new collection under creative director Daniel Lee. But then when you look at the second quarter revenue, which encompasses April through June um, of 2020, Bottega Veneta, which is one of the smaller fashion houses that Caring owns, saw the smallest drop in sales, um, only a 24% on a comparable basis for that same three-month period last year. So just by way of comparison, Gucci and St. Laurent sales dropped by almost half. So Bottega's was only 24% drop. So Gucci and St. Laurent sales dropped by basically double what Bottega's did. And I think Bottega's done relatively well despite the pandemic because of you know, this major popularity of the brand now, largely due to Daniel Lee. Now let's switch gears, veering away from the Bottega discussion, and let's do some housekeeping matters. So as I left off in my last episode of season one, I believe it was episode 14, I promised an update on some ongoing lawsuits that I had discussed throughout the episodes of my podcast series of season one. So the first case that I wanted to talk about is the Selaska versus Neiman Marcus case. There are some interesting developments here. As you guys may remember, this is the lawsuit that was filed against Neiman Marcus in April of 2020, alleging the retailer falsely affiliated garments sold by them with native artisans through its use of the term raven's tail which is one of the great weaving traditions of the northern northwest coast native tribes and thereby unlawfully allegedly infringe their copyright. This case is thought to be the first time that a business has ever been sued in the U.S. for copying a traditional indigenous pattern, so it could be historical. Neiman's was trying to sell this raven's tail kind of coat for over $2,000 on their website, and I looked up the recent docket history And it looks like Neiman's got a few extensions for replying to the uh, complaint that Silaska filed. And then the Neiman's answer was due on August 31st. But instead of answering, Silaska ended up filing an amended complaint. This is not really um, unusual. It probably means that Silaska communicated with Neiman's on the side and told them that instead of filing an answer, they're going to file an amended complaint first. So this amended complaint is a little different than their original the main difference being that they're adding another defendant. So it's not just Neiman Marcus, but also Alanui, which is the actual Italian knitwear brand, which according to this amended complaint is allegedly the producer, supplier, and importer of this Raven's tail knitted coat at issue that was sold by Neiman Marcus. So now the defendants have 14 days to respond to this amended complaint. Of course, they might ask for an extension of time. And as always, I will keep watch on this case. I think this might be a pretty big landmark case considering that 
it is allegedly the first time a U.S. business has been sued um, for copying a traditional indigenous pattern. Now let's move on to the second outstanding case I had from season one of the podcast series. It's a pretty complex patent infringement lawsuit um, titled Jacob's Jewelry Company versus Tiffany & Co., which is, of course, the famous Tiffany's Jewelry Company, which we all know here in the United States and abroad. This is a case where a relatively small jewelry company called Jacob's Jewelry accused Tiffany's of selling a $1 million bracelet, which infringed the Jacob's Jewelry color-changing stone patent, which they own. And wow, this case is getting really interesting. I really enjoyed reading the documents and the docket history for this case. So this is a federal court case um, where, and it was filed in the Southern District of New York. And they do things a little different than the federal court here in California where I practice. So here the attorney for Tiffany's wrote a letter requesting the court um, hold a pre-motion conference for their motion to dismiss Jacob's complaint pursuant to the Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 12b-6 for failure to state a claim upon which relief can be granted. Now, for my non-attorney listeners or non-U.S.-based attorney listeners, the Rule 12b-6 motions are not usually successful, Um, probably because pleading requirements are pretty liberal in the U.S. and failure to state a claim upon which relief can be granted can mean a number of things, all of which have to do with what is stated in the complaint. So usually this means that the complaint failed to properly allege um, one or more of the required elements of an action. So The letter from Tiffany's counsel stated that the asserted patent in this case is actually invalid for failure to claim patent-eligible subject matter. And the Tiffany's attorney alleges that the Jacobs Jewelry patent claims the natural phenomenon that objects look different from different angles of viewing without anything more to establish an inventive concept. So Tiffany's is basically saying that the the Jacob's Jewelry patent is completely invalid. This is pretty major. And then there's an interesting part in Tiffany's letter towards the end. I'm reading straight from the letter to the court here. So they write, even if the patent applicant was the first to discover the natural phenomenon of objects appearing different when viewed from different angles, he was not, it would still be patent ineligible. Even a novel discovery that is an abstract idea is patent ineligible. Now this is my own notes here. He is correct in that. Um, A novel discovery that is just an idea is not usually eligible to be patented. And the Tiffany's attorney then cites a case stating that the court in smart systems, and I'll leave a citation to this case for you guys at the bottom of this episode, explained this distinction between novelty and eligibility by discussing Galileo's physics discovery in 1589. So he states that, this is a quote, to illustrate this distinction, 
between novelty and patent ineligibility, consider Galileo's discovery that heavy and light objects fall at the same rate. That concept, at the time, Galileo famously dropped two balls from the Leaning Tower of Pisa in 1589 and gained his famous insight, which was wholly novel, upending the then-accepted but incorrect Aristotle view that objects fall at different rates relative to their mass. I'm sure we probably all remember this from our high school physics class. But now I'm reading from the letter again. As novel as the discovery was, the idea was and still remains an entirely abstract idea, a law of nature over which no one may claim a patent. The Jacobs Jewelry patent claims something like Galileo's discovery that two objects fall at the same rate. Galileo didn't invent anything. He just recognized a natural phenomenon, and it's the same here. The Jacobs Jewelry patent claims do not cover the invention of anything. Rather, the patent lays claim to a natural phenomenon that is ineligible for patenting, the change in the aesthetic appearance of an object based on the viewing angle of an observer. So then a few days later, the Council for Jacobs Jewelry writes their letter in response also to the court, basically vehemently disagreeing with all of the Tiffany's arguments. So they start by saying that in the patent office, the patent examiner did not grant the patent on the gemstone arrangement owing to the, quote, effect it creates, but in recognition of the novelty of the gemstone arrangement on the base. And they further go on to state that the invention in claim 16 is not the perception of color change. Now, the claims are kind of like the heart of a patent um, because they actually define the limits of exactly what the patent does and does not cover. So the attorney for Jacob's Jewelry then goes on to state in his letter that the invention resides in the novel structural arrangement of gemstones as meticulously recited in this claim number 16. This patent has many claims. Um, which I read, and I can also link a copy of this patent to the episode notes of this episode if anybody would like to read it. It is very interesting, especially if you've never seen a patent before. Then the attorney for Jacob's Jewelry goes on to state that the Galileo analysis is incorrect. They decline Tiffany's dubious compliment that the patent claims something like Galileo's discovery that two objects fall at the same rate. They say that the comparison is totally incorrect, as is the famous story that Galileo dropped balls from the Leaning Tower of Pisa, which did not really happen, for Galileo made his discovery by rolling spheres on inclined surfaces and then measuring distances covered by the spheres over equal time periods. So looks like the Jacobs Jewelry attorney here is attempting to school the opposing counsel here. This part made me laugh. It's probably as funny as patent lit litigation gets. And for the record today, most historians consider the Galileo ball drop from the Leaning Tower of Pisa story to have been more of a thought experiment rather than an actual physical test. So 
I guess we all learned something here today. <laughs> anyway, so then the judge in this case reviewed both Tiffany's letter and the plaintiff's letter in response, and the court decided to dispense with the requirement of a pre-motion conference in this case and to directly proceed to scheduling motion practice. The court set defendant's motion to dismiss to be due on September 25th, 2020, so in about a little over a week. And then plaintiff's response will be due on October 26th. I have these dates calendared and I can't wait to see what happens here. This is going to be interesting on many levels. For one, the validity of the actual patent. And also this is kind of like the story of the little guy versus the big guy as Tiffany's obviously a major jewelry empire and Jacob's Jewelry is a much smaller company. And on that note, this will conclude the episode. As always, stay tuned next Tuesday for episode three of season two of the Fashion Law Network podcast series. And thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful day. Bye.